This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Just a couple of uh, well, just one one significant announcement for those of you who are uh, who have friends that might want to catch some of this uh, seminar as well. Uh, I'm actually not going to be repeating sessions. So uh, all six of the sessions are different. Um, So if you uh, have friends that want to catch any of those, or if you're thinking that we know some of this will be repeated, it actually won't be. So it's all a a complete series. You know, they gave me uh, the book of Colossians to cover in six presentations. I mean, you know, you could spend weeks on this. Uh, but, uh, you know, so it, it, there was no way I could structure this so that we would repeat so that, you know, you could catch other things. So um, before we get started, let's just pray together, ask God's blessing on our time. Father in heaven, we're grateful this morning for the privilege of considering this momentous book in the New Testament. Short, only four chapters. But, Father, pregnant with uh, relevance for our generation today. And, Lord, I just put before you this group and the others that will be attending later today. We ask that your spirit would speak to our hearts. Give me the words to speak, I pray, in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. 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 All right. So... uh, this is the uh, initial presentation on the book of Colossians. Thanks for all of you who are, are here with us. Uh, just to give you a brief overview, uh, first of all, we'll be dealing with the church in total. Uh, of course, I've borrowed the organizing theme uh, total as the uh, GYC folks have been talking about, you know, total surrender, total sacrifice, etc. So, uh, The church in total will be dealing with Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And the question we'll answer in that presentation, this initial one, is what did the New Testament church look like? What were its characteristics? And what does that mean for us today? Uh, Number two, total focus. Colossians chapter 1, 13 to 23. Where did the New Testament church put its focus? And... That, of course, again, will speak to us. What, what, what should we be focusing on in our generation? Colossians 1, 24 to 29 will deal with the question, why does the church exist? What's the purpose of it? And then uh, our last presentation today, this afternoon, Colossians chapter 2, what dangers did the Colossian church face and what does that uh, tell us today about the dangers we might be facing. Then tomorrow, we'll be dealing with the Christian experience within the church at Colossae. What did it look like to be a member of that church? What were the expectations? And what would your life be like? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, verse 6. And then finally... What kind of people make a difference in the church? Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Total recall. Paul recalls all the people that were influential 
in, in the Colossian church and why. You know, we often skip over, just to say a brief word about that last presentation, we often are tempted to skip over those last parts of Paul's letters where he talks about the individuals that are involved in the church. Please don't do that in your Bible study. You can learn a lot of lessons and gain a lot of insights through reading about the individual people that make up the church. So, a blueprint we find in the book of Colossians. This was something I, uh, a couple of things I discovered as I was studying this book. First of all, of course, in the book of Colossians, and you probably know this already, but uh, Colossae and Laodicea are linked together twice in the book of Colossians. They're linked together in chapter 2, and Paul again brings up Laodicea in chapter 4. So uh, that should speak to us. It has, you know, since we are generation of church history has been given the label of Laodicea. Anything that the Bible says about Laodicea ought to be something that we take seriously, right? And uh, Paul mentions this, as I said, a couple of times in the book of Colossians. So there's uh, a link there. Going beyond that, you see this uh, quotation on the screen from Ellen White's writings. Uh, This was a letter that she wrote to A.G. Daniels and W.W. Prescott, dated 1903. And notice what she says here. I think this is fascinating, don't you? The first and second chapters of Colossians have been presented to me. Now, well, you know when she says that, you got to take that seriously, right? How many think we need to take that seriously? Have, this has been presented to me, she says. The first and second chapters of Colossians have been presented to me as an expression of what our churches were. Just in North America? No, in every part of the world should be. So in Colossians, you find a blueprint endorsed by the spirit of prophecy as to what our Seventh-day Adventist churches should look like in every part of the world. That means in Africa, in Asia, in Australia, in North America, and in Europe. All the churches in the world ought to have these characteristics that we're going to describe in Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2. And of course, there are things to be learned for us throughout the book. That's why I believe the GYC leadership wanted Colossians to be studied at this particular conference. So let's get right into the book of Colossians. We'll start with chapter one. I hope you have your Bible with you. I will have most of the scriptures on the screen. I'll be relying on the King James Version predominantly. So we'll get right into Colossians chapter one, verse one. Paul begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to just make a couple of uh, points about this initial, uh, these initial uh, verses. By the way, again, how many of you think, how many of you believe what the Bible says about every word being important in the Bible? Do you think that the Bible wastes words? Do you think Paul wasted time uh, saying things? 
just to fill up pages? No. So when we look at these, even the first verse of Colossians, we can find out something about the New Testament church. And I would like to suggest that by this phrase, and I have it underlined here and bolded, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by what means, friends? What is it? I didn't hear you. I, when I, I'm a teacher. Just, just want make, need to make a disclaimer here. In my classroom, when I ask my students a question, I expect that they will respond. Is that too much to ask? Okay, great. Thank you. You know, we have a big room here and a room for more people, by the way. But if you want to respond, that's okay. All right? So here we are. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God... What does that imply, by the will of God? It implies that Paul's apostleship was the result of God's planning and action. In the New Testament church, everyone, who's calling the shots? God is. You see that all over the book. I mean, read the book of Acts. You cannot ever get the impression that it was political processes that were moving that church. Am I right? Have you read the book of Acts? Who's always the one that's directing the show in the book of Acts? It's the Holy Spirit. Over and over again, the Holy Spirit said, do this. Or the Holy Spirit said, don't do this. That's how the book of Acts is. And of course, Colossae was no different. This is a part of the New Testament church. God led the church. So I would like to suggest that because of that, the New Testament church was an orderly church because it was ordered by God. The Holy Spirit was directing the show. Now, I also want to make just a translational note here uh, with the King James Version Uh, Some of the English versions will say, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. And I have the Greek text up here for you. Um, And I would normally in my classes always season my students with a little Greek, but I'll spare you that today, okay? Everybody all right with that? Uh, Unless, how many of you know Greek? Okay, one, just a little bit, okay. Well, for, the, for my brother here, you know, you see all these dative cases there? They all go together, right? So uh, many of the translations also translate this something like what I have here at the bottom. To the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. By the way, you'll see the relevance of this in a minute. To them that be a Colossae, holy and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus. And of course, Schlachter 2000 says, An die Heiligen und Treuen Brüder in Christus in Colossae. So all of those say essentially the same thing. Now here's the significance of that, I think. In the New Testament, is there a distinction between saints and church members? That's the question I have for you. What do you say? In the New Testament, are saints held up as something separate from the members of the church? What do you say? No. The answer is no. Why is that significant? 
it's significant for this reason. Because there are religious organizations out there who want to make a distinction between saints and brethren in the church. They're into making distinctions. How many of you have heard people praying to saint so-and-so? Right? The, the New Testament does not allow us to do such, the, such things. In the New Testament, the brethren are the saints. Does that make sense? Okay. So just a little side note, but I think it's worthy of consideration. So in the New Testament, the church is orderly because God is ordering the program. Paul was an apostle by the will of God. But we also learned some more things in the following verses. Good morning, ladies. Plenty of room up front, but if you want to stay back there, that's okay. Paul says, we give thanks to God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And then I want to go down to verse 9, because this is kind of lumping something together here. What you find is numerous references to prayer in this epistle. The New Testament church was a praying church, not just an orderly church, but a praying church. And Paul says down in verse 9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, God's church has always been blessed when its ministers are praying men. Paul was a praying man. And the people who ministered to the church in Colossae were praying people. Very clear. When, but how do we know that Paul means someone else other than himself here, in addition? You guys didn't get enough sleep last night. I can see that. Come on. How do we know? It says, we. Who is we? Paul and the other ministers that were associated with him in his labor. We always pray for you. We don't cease to do that. So when God's church is blessed with praying ministers, here are some of the things that happen. More likely, they are more likely to inspire church members to pray when ministers pray themselves. And it's clear that the New Testament church was a praying church, which is why it was a powerful church. They could never have done the things that they did had they not been praying and asking for God's blessing and for his power. When ministers pray, they are more likely to seek God in times of difficulty and discouragement. When God's ministers pray, they are less likely to resort to carnal methods in an effort to solve spiritual problems. How many of you have ever seen that done before? Carnal methods to solve spiritual problems. When ministers pray, it's less likely that they'll resort to such things. When ministers pray, they are more humble and teachable than men who pray little. And that goes for all of us, by the way. You know, the, when we are on our knees before God, humility comes 
with humbling the heart before our Lord, right? So we're more able to, we're easier to work with. How many of you would like to be, and I'd like to see a show of hands on this, how many of you would like to be known as someone who is easy to work with? Oh, Lord, give me that. Ministers who pray are more likely to preach with power and conviction. They are more likely to be soul winners. They're more likely to be bold at the right time and cautious at the right time. How many of you think that that's important to understand? There are times when the work of God needs boldness and instant action. And there are times when the work of God requires that we hold back and be cautious and wait. If, we, if ministers are not praying and if church members aren't praying, they are less likely to understand how to act at the right time. And that is so important. You know, the spirit of prophecy says that Spiritual battles can be won or lost on the turn of minutes. Fascinating stuff. Also, when ministers pray, they're more likely to give glory to God in times of success. How many of you think that's important, right? Prayer helps us to give glory to God when things happen that are good. And we're more likely to give glory to God in times even of discouragement. So the New Testament church was definitely, without question, a praying church. Paul says, we do not cease to pray for you. That doesn't mean, of course, that he never slept. But when Paul knelt down on his knees during the day, probably multiple times, to seek God's blessing, he prayed for the church in Colossae. He was earnest and persevering in those prayers. And God heard and blessed because of it. I would encourage all of you, even though you're, you're here this morning, if you uh, make sure you listen to Dr. Paul Ratsara's uh, seminar on prayer. It'll be on audio verse, just like this one will be. Make sure you catch that. One of the most vital things we can do as a people is to seek God's power and wisdom through prayer. Ellen White says this in Testimonies to Ministers, page 149. She says, oh, we want, you know, when she starts out a sentence with the word, oh, what do you think that means? Yeah, there's a yearning there. There's a, an awareness of need, a desire for something. And she says, oh, we want more praying ministers. Why do you think she had occasion to say that, friends? Because there weren't minister, there were some ministers who were not praying men. Do you think that that is possible, that we still have that problem today? She says, oh, we want more praying ministers, men who carry a solemn weight of souls, men who have a faith that works by love and purifies the soul. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then she makes this comment, 
How imperfect is faith in our churches? Why do we not believe the Lord will do just as he says he will? Why do you think that many of our churches have this kind of imperfect faith today? What might be the cause based on the context of what we've been talking about? And I'm actually asking you to respond now. Lack of prayer on the part of who? The ministers. If you sense or know that your minister is not a praying man, pray for him that God will help him to become one. Ask him if he will pray with you. But seek the Lord on his account. Also in verse 12 of this same chapter, the final verse. So this whole uh, section, in a sense, the whole New Testament uh, character, the characteristics of the New Testament church, there's an envelope structure here. Paul begins in verse 3, talking about prayer. He ends the section in verse 12, talking about prayer. Everything the New Testament church did was wrapped in this envelope. But Paul says here in verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. So Paul here is finishing this section by giving thanks to God. This is how he prays for them. He gives thanks for, for what God has done for them. Ellen White says this again in uh, 7 BC 906. How complete this prayer is. There is no limit to the blessings that it is our privilege to receive. We may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Notice that. Paul says, we do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all, spiritual, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. She says, the Holy Ghost would never have inspired Paul to offer this prayer in behalf of his brethren if it had not been possible for them to receive an answer from God in accordance with the request. Isn't that good news? Do you think that if we still pray these kind of prayers today, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, do you think God will still honor that request today? I want you to think about a situation right now in your own life. I know it's a little early for application in the message, but I'm going to do it anyway. I want you to think about a situation right now in your own life, and I know you've got one. I've got some. Think about a situation in your life where you need an answer to this prayer, that you would be filled with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Do you have that situation in mind right now? Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe it's deciding what you're going to do with your education or your future or something like that. Maybe it's a spouse or a potential spouse. God can still hear and answer this prayer today, just the same as when Paul prayed it. If you ask for yourself, God will give it to you. 
Closing this uh, statement from Mrs. White. Since this is so, we know that God's will is manifested to his people as they need a clear understanding of his will. Today, in this generation, as at no other time in Earth's history, would you agree with me that we need a clear understanding of the will of God, perhaps than any other generation previous to this? We need to know exactly what the marching orders are. That is on a personal level and on a corporate level as a church. So we can still pray this prayer today. We can be the praying church that is outlined here in the book of Colossians. Now, something else about the Colossian church is the fact that it was a gospel church, or we might say an evangelical church. Now, some people don't like that term, but there's nothing wrong with that term, actually. It's the way some people have used it that, have made, that has made it uh, distasteful. Notice what Paul says here in verse 4 of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 verse 4. He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, for the hope, verse 5 continuing, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. Too many churches today use the term evangelical to indicate that they focus on the gospel to the exclusion of other essential features of faith. The church in Colossae was not that kind of church, but it was a church where the gospel was preached, where it was believed in and practiced. The Number one essential doctrinal feature that we see coming in here right at the beginning in verse 4 is faith in Christ Jesus. Paul preached Christ first and foremost everywhere he went. The New Testament church was a church that was built on the gospel. It was not a used, the gospel wasn't used as a means to truncate the message, to do away with other essential truths, but it was used in, uh, instead to enhance the understanding of all that the Old Testament taught. Friends, can, can we afford to focus on Jesus as long as we don't ignore other vital truth? What do, you, what do you think? Some people want to make Jesus everything. How many of you think that's a good idea? I think it's a great idea. Let's make Jesus everything. But in doing so, do we have to throw anything away? No. Well, we do have to throw away our own righteousness. That needs to be out of the picture. We need to throw away what else? Our sins, right? But we don't need to throw any truth away if we focus on Jesus. And so Colossae, even though they were focused on the gospel, they were not throwing away other vital truth, as we'll see, uh, especially later. 
I just want to say one more thing about this. Because there are lots of ideas about Jesus floating around in today's church culture, let me ask you a diagnostic question about the man who you believe in, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question about your Jesus. Would he feel comfortable affirming present truth in a conversation about the significance of 1844? Would your Jesus affirm the investigative judgment that is taking place right now in the heavenly sanctuary? Would he feel comfortable affirming the truth about marriage that is, you know, man and woman for life? Would your Jesus feel comfortable doing that? Let me suggest that if he wouldn't, if that's something, if those, those doctrines or any other points of present truth, if he would not feel comfortable affirming those, if he would begin to whittle those down in your understanding, then let me suggest that maybe you've got an imposter on your hands. We want the real Jesus, the one of the Bible. This is the one that Paul preached. This is the one that the Colossian Christians believed in. They had faith in Christ, Jesus. But they went beyond that because it also says in verse 4 that they had love for all the saints. What kind of church was the church in Colossae? Was it a church where people ran over each other with steamrollers every time they had a board meeting? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> it sounds to me like, uh, at least from Paul's estimation here, that this was a loving church. A church that expressed love and acted in love. Those are two different things, by the way, right? How many of you had love expressed to you, but then not acted out? Hmm. Lots of that takes place. That's very sad. The Colossian church was not like that, though. Paul says he affirms the love that they have for all the saints. You know, as, as we go more into this uh, document, this inspired letter that Paul wrote, you will see that Paul will take on some errors that they were, that, 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 that were, taking, that were being preached in Colossae. Some people believe that you can't be loving and still deal with error. So you have to choose between the two. And most people, of course, want to be known as loving people, so they choose not to deal with errors and issues. The book of Colossians is a great example of how a loving church can also be a church in which issues are dealt with. How many of you think that that's an important balance for us to have in our church today? Got to deal with issues, but we have to do it in a loving way. For some people, though, no matter how loving and kind you are, 
if you confront something, they will always accuse you of not being loving. I suppose Paul had to deal with that too. But very clearly, in verse 4, you see it on the screen, it says that they had love for how many of the saints? All the saints. Yes. This was not an exclusive church. This was not a church that was full of cliques and special interests. How many of you believe that our Seventh-day Adventist church can become a loving church like this? I believe it can be. And I believe in many places it is. But we still have some growing to do. Would you say amen to that? Now in verse 5, notice the reference to the hope which is laid up in heaven. Wow. What is implied in that statement? You see that? I'll read it with you. Let's all read it together. Verse 5. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. What is implied in this hope laid up for you in heaven? What great doctrine that we preach is implied in those words? What has to happen to experience that? Hello? You guys, you're with me, right? What, happened, what has to happen there? The second coming of Christ. So you see that even in the book of Colossians, not just in Revelation 14, uh, where we have, you know, the second coming of Jesus, you know, the hour of his judgment has come, you know, part of the everlasting gospel. It's not just there, but even here in Colossians, the second coming of Jesus is referred to as part of the everlasting gospel. Why is that true? You ever thought about that? This is our hope. Why is that part of the good news? Okay, my brother says the whole purpose of the Bible is to bring us back to, to God. And if we're living in a fallen world where everything is messed up, how can we enjoy the kind of fellowship with God that we really would like to enjoy if we're believers? And how can God enjoy the kind of fellowship with us that he wants to have, more importantly, if we're still in this fallen world? No, that can't continue. The world must come to an end. History must close. And Jesus must come again to take us to be with him where he is. And so the Colossian believers, that was part of their uh, faith that Jesus would come again. There was a hope laid up for them in heaven, and Jesus would come and take them there. Now, I want to uh, make another point about the, another characteristic I want to share with you, and that is in verse 6. Notice what Paul says here. He says, which is come unto you, he's referring to the word of the truth of the gospel, he said, which is come unto you as it is where, friends? In all the world. Really? In all the world. What kind of a church was this? Was this a congregational church? Did the Colossians think of themselves as simply a single unit? Hey, it's just us. 
We can do what we want to do because it's just us, right? Or did they think of themselves as something different? What do you say? Yeah, what, what did they, how did they view themselves? They were part of a world church. Does that ring any bells for anyone? I mean, this, you know, the spirit of prophecy was clear. For those of you who came in late, you missed the, the, the golden statement. I read it yesterday uh, just to introduce the, uh, the seminar. But uh, Mrs. White says clearly, for first and second chapters of Colossians are a blueprint for our churches in every part of the world. This is what the church in every part of the world should look like. So no surprise to find that we have a reference to being a worldwide movement here. And also notice that uh, it says, And bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. So here's some of the things we can gather from this. Number one, the church was being replicated in other places besides Colossae. It was an advancing, missionary-driven movement. The church in Colossae also, according to this uh, phrase, as it doth also in you. Did you see that? Just take a look at that. Refresh your mind there. As it doth also in you. This means that the church in Colossae was established in the same manner as the other churches in the rest of the world had been. Right? Does that, does that make a difference? Yeah, it does. Number three. The church in Colossae was bound to those other churches by virtue of the fact that they had believed the same message as the churches in the rest of the world. There, you see a reference to it right there. You know, since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. And, of course, we can gather that the church in Colossae was governed by a representative governance structure as were the other churches of the book of Acts. You see in the book of Acts how they invited all the delegates from the different churches in Acts chapter 15 to solve that great controversy over circumcision. And the church in Colossae undoubtedly sent its delegates if it was established at that time. So, does any of that sound familiar to you? <laughs> this is exactly the kind of church that the Seventh-day Adventist church is. It's a mission-driven movement. It establishes churches in the same manner all over the world. It's a representative structure. And it is a movement that is based on shared faith in the message of truth. Friends, I want to share what I think is an important thought with you at this point. We must never think of ourselves as separate from others in the world church, as though we could do our own thing apart from everyone else. And I see that as a growing tendency amongst us today. We seem to want to become insular. We want to push our other brethren aside and we want to say, look, we want to do our own thing. We can be self-sustaining. We got all the money we need. You guys get along as best you can. That's not the policy 
that you see revealed in the book of Colossians or anywhere else in the New Testament or in the whole Bible. God's people always thought of themselves as being part of one unit, one family. Now, I want to also mention another point here in verse 7. Let's read this text together. Everyone can see, those of you who are in the back, ladies, you can see the the screen, you can read from the back. Great, thank you. Uh, Verse 7. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. So you have a reference here to this fellow Epaphras. How much do you know about Epaphras? He's a minister, he's a faithful minister. He is a fellow servant of Paul. Epaphras, we'll find out later in the book, Epaphras was a Colossian himself. He was trained to witness to his own people, and he was a faithful minister to them. Paul was evidently influential in this man's life, and likewise, Epaphras was influential in Paul's life as well. He refers to him as a dear fellow servant, not as some lackey who just did what he was told. I think we see here, don't you, that the New Testament church, especially here in Colossian, uh, the Colossian church, they were systematic and orderly in training missionaries. The New Testament church, and I think this is really an important point, so don't miss this. Even though you had heavyweights like Paul, in the New Testament church. The New Testament church was not a superstar-oriented church. Can I say that one more time? The New Testament church didn't, was not about superstars. There were not just a few big hitters that went around and did everything. There were people like Epaphras who went out and planted churches. You don't read much about Epaphras in the New Testament. But he's the one who established the church in Colossae. One of the dangers connected with events like this one that we are sitting at right now. There are many blessings. I'm thankful we have GYC. Thankful to be here. One of the dangers is that we can develop a superstar mentality. Where we think that if it's not so-and-so, then it's not worth listening to, right? Do you find any evidence in the New Testament that this was potentially an issue and Paul straightly dealt with it where in which book? Do you remember? Yeah, Apollos was involved, yeah. 1 Corinthians, right? He told the church, under no circumstances were they to have any sort of party spirit or have, you know, this, uh, hone in on one particular preacher. Hey, he, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Paul says, forget about that stuff. We would do well to heed that, wouldn't we? 
Epaphras was a trained missionary. We need more trained missionaries. He was one of those people. He was somebody from that city that was trained to go and reach the people of his own city. This is the model that I think God would have us follow. One of my students, fascinating young man, was baptized just April of this year, studying theology at Weimar Institute. He, his goal, his heart's desire, is to go back to his home country and reach his people for the Lord. The New Testament church was a church that trained and discipled not just babysitters, but missionaries. Verse 10, my time I see is fleeing away, so I'm going to have to pick up the pace a bit. Verse 10 says that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What does this imply here? You know, Paul talks about all these things, you know, how Epaphras was a faithful minister and so on. And he says, uh, this is right after he says, we always, we never cease to pray for you, etc. Never cease to pray for you for what? That, would you do, that you would do what? That you would walk, How? Worthy of the Lord, unto all pleasing. Are you catching these words like all? You know, worthy, things like that. What kind of a church was this? It was a holy church. They were concerned about holy living. They wanted to be pleasing in all things. They wanted to be fruitful in a few good works. No, it says every good work. And staying stagnant in the knowledge of God, maintaining the status quo? Is that how Paul puts it here? No. What does it say? Increasing in the knowledge of God. You've heard these ideas before. You know, if you're not growing, you're perishing. I see so many of our people who are content with what they learned 30 years ago when they were baptized. They feel like they know all the truth now. And they are not progressing in the knowledge of God. Maybe you went to an academy, an Adventist academy, had a great Bible teacher there. Praise the Lord. But you need to grow beyond that. The Christian life is one of continual growth, building on the foundation that was laid. This is vitally important, especially for young people. You know, at some point in time, Jesus is going to come. How many of you believe that? Very soon, I think. Okay? So some of you are going to still be young when Jesus comes. You are going to need a level of maturity that you don't possess now. And don't think you possess it because I understand the arrogance of youth because I was young before. How many of you were young before? 
Okay, thank you, brother, for raising your hand. Thank you, brother, sister, right? When I was 20 years old, I thought I had life all figured out. And then I turned 40 and figured out I didn't. Growth in grace has to be progressive. We need to be increasing in the knowledge of God all the time, every day. That's the only way we will be faithful in every good work and walk worthy of the Lord in all pleasing. So the New Testament church was a holy church. It was also a powerful, persevering church. Verse 11 says, this is still part of the prayer. This is what Paul is asking that that might be their experience. He says, strengthened with all might. Have you noticed how many times the word all has occurred here? (laughs) All pleasing, all power, every good work. I mean, there's all kinds of references to all. He says, strengthened with all might. According to his glorious power. Wow. Now, I could see we might be disappointed if he had said, strengthen with all might according to your glorious power. In, in that case, we would have to delete the word glorious. There's nothing glorious about human power. But when you talk about the power of God, that's glorious. It is our privilege, friends, to exercise and experience the glorious power of God, to be strengthened to act with his might. I enjoy lifting weights. It's one of the things I like to do. Um, Because, you know, lifting weights... It, it, it builds you up so that the everyday tasks that you have to do don't seem like they require any effort. God's power, God's strength in a spiritual sense can propel us forward so that we, the things that used to trip us up, the things that used to make us fall flat on our faces will no longer be issues in our lives. And the challenges and obstacles we face in the work of God. How many of you have faced those before? Challenges and obstacles in God's work. You're saying, I don't know how we are going to raise the money to do this. That's one I deal with from time to time. I don't know how I'm going to make this class schedule work out so that all the students do what they need to do and have time to do outreach and time to work with their hands. That's another one I deal with from time to time. But Paul says it is our privilege to be strengthened with all might in accordance with his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with what? Joyfulness. So the New Testament church, by the grace of God, was a powerful, persevering church. So you've seen all these characteristics, orderliness, prayerfulness, gospelness, if I can use that. It was a world church. It was a discipling church. It was a powerful, persevering church. 
And it was a holy church. So I want to ask you two questions as we finish up. Number one, does this describe your local church? Only you can answer that question. Does this describe your local church? If it doesn't, how do you sense God's calling in your life to change that? You might be sitting there thinking, that doesn't describe my church. What am I supposed to do? Ask God how he, what he wants you to do to become a reformer in your local church. Some people think, well, it doesn't fit my local church. Well, let me go to question two. We'll come back to that in a moment. If this does describe your local church, I want to ask you another question then. Do you fit into it? Would you feel comfortable in a church like this? Would you fit in? And if not, what's your plan to change that? It's no use to think, I'm going to change the church. Lots of people have tried to do that. Some people are still trying to do it. I have friends that are trying to do it. People that I went to, school, to seminary with, they are bound and determined they're going to change this church. Not for the better. Sorry to say. Friends, that is an exercise in futility. God's church will go forward. It will look like this when Jesus comes, or better. The question is, are you planning to be a part of it? I want to be a part of it. What do you say? Amen. All right. So in the next hour, we'll deal with the focus of the New Testament church, the focus of Colossians, uh, which is Christ and him crucified. Come back in a few minutes, and we'll begin around 10 o'clock. Let's have prayer before we dismiss. Father in heaven, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be working as we take just a short recess. We ask that your will would be accomplished, that this church, this Seventh-day Advent movement, would again resemble and even exceed the characteristics found here in Colossians. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.